Financial residency podcasts are brought to you this week by weatherbyhealthcare.com. Just as the right advice helps you thrive financially, the right support team allows you to excel professionally. Weatherby Healthcare's locums experts will match you with the best jobs, prepare you for success, and provide 24-7 support. The bottom line is that working locums with Weatherby helps you earn more money and take better control of your career. If that sounds like music to your ears, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com payday to get started. Hey everyone, have you looked at college costs lately? If you haven't, definitely check that out. If you have, you know how much they've gone up. It's been, surprisingly, it's been 20 years since I started undergraduate. I took a look at you know my college costs and they're three times higher than they were when I went. And I think for a lot of schools, it's even substantially higher than that increases. So costs have been going up on top of it all. The actual price that you pay has become difficult to understand. It's very, there's not a lot of transparency in what people actually pay. And it's progressively, it's become progressively more expensive for those that have more financial resources or income, which is probably a lot of you listening. So I think it's safe to say that if you have children or plan to, that you should be thinking about how this is going to play out in your situation, ideally sooner than later. So today we're going to be talking about how this all works and how to start planning ahead and what it might look like for your situation. And to talk through it, I brought on my buddy, Joe Messenger. Joe definitely knows college planning. He's a baller in this area. He's been very involved in helping people work through this particular scenario for years. He's a fellow certified financial planner and the founder of Capstone Wealth Partners. He helped build out their college planning approach. He's also the founder of College Aid Pro, which is a technology and service solution. It's designed to help advisors provide clients with better college planning advice and services. And so he's just in general, overall, a very knowledgeable guy, when, especially when it comes to college planning. So I think you'll definitely benefit from hearing some of the ideas he has and some of the conversations we'll go through. So hope you enjoy today's conversation and that we'll jump into that now. Joe, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going, Daniel? It's going well. I'm glad to have you on. Looking forward to talking some college planning with you. For those of you listening, Joe is, I would consider, probably the most knowledgeable person that I know in regards to college planning. So I know it should be a fun conversation because you you very much know your stuff in this area. Also, I'm excited to talk about it because it's such a big beast of an area. It's be, it seems like it's become a bigger a bigger thing. I was curious about this as far as like cost-wise. So I went to University of Florida and I went and I started in 2001. So, I mean, that's been quite a while, but it's not that long. So back then I was looking up the rates for it. So the tuition in 2001 for UF was 2,200 a year, which sounded about kind of right with what I had remembered. And so today it's $6,400. They have very, by the way, they have very low in-state tuition levels, like University of Florida in particular has very low levels. So that's, I would say low average, but I mean, we're still talking like a three X increase in tuition costs. It's, it's, it's been kind of a, on a crazy increase cost-wise, right? Has that been kind of the general consensus like over the past 20 years or is that how has college costs changed over the past 20 years or has it just been me? 
it's not just you. I mean, college costs, they really soared in the 90s and then in the 20 aughts. So, you know, up through 2010, I mean, they were there were years where we were clipping away at, you know, seven, eight, nine percent increases every single year. Yeah. And that's when inflation uh, for, was not that high, right? <laughs> right. You're right. These, these colleges continue to raise prices because nobody pushed back. I mean, it's like, mm. you know, it's a supply and demand thing. And people say that all the time. I started doing this planning back in you know, 2008 and nine, And then people were saying, oh, these costs are out of control and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, yeah, well, take a look. I mean, you know, like, like you, I went to Penn State and I was an in-state kid. The all-in cost was 10 grand when I graduated in 2000. That's tuition room and everything. That's all in. So, you know, as, so put that in perspective, like when you go to school, you could get a little bit of scholarship, maybe pays for a third. You could work while you're there, pay two, 300 bucks a month and have maybe a little student loan for like maybe 10,000. That's what I did. Yep. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. Yeah. And it was doable. Yeah. Yeah. And it was doable. And it's not, you know, the student loan debt's not, you know, it's a hundred or a couple hundred bucks a month. We can handle it, but that same student today at one of our state schools, they're all in cost, probably twenty five to thirty thousand. Yeah. So, and they can't make any more than you know those few hundred bucks a month to pay for it. So the pay as you go has not moved. So therefore, we've just the student loan crisis has gotten out of control. Mm-hmm. I was looking at a report. This is from who was it? From College Board. Anyway, they were saying that the inflation. Their data was showing that the inflation the growth rate of college costs was really high, but over the past five years or so, it's gone down quite a bit to where it's almost, or it's a lot closer to inflation. Like I think they said in 2019, it was like 0.5% above inflation. Has that been the same trend you've seen? Yeah, it's been, there has been a positive trend in the fact that they've kind of leveled off, but they're still raising tuition to like at the state schools, we've seen them really come down because they're being held accountable that at the two to 3%, kind of like inflation cost of living. So that's one thing that's happened, but the privates are still going up four and 5%, a lot of them, especially the high end ones. So, I mean, it is, it's better than eight, but when you talk about our high end privates, many of them are over $80,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Tuition is sixty thousand. So even raising it by five percent, that's three thousand dollars more per year. Yeah. So the numbers, you know, so so yes, they've leveled, but that three percent is a much more meaningful number, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. <laughs> right. It's. I mean, I guess part of it is, you know, or really all of it is supply and demand. I mean, that's kind of what drives, especially private schools. Yeah. Just pricing it based on what they can collect. I also, yeah, and there's, a, there's a crazy, there's a crazy part of it. Cause people are like, you know, they continue to go up and it kind of got into this, like, you know, well, if they're 72,000, we better be 73. And if they're 73, we better be 74. Just this idea <laughs> of like the value equated to having a higher price, just crazy thing. Like there's no, but the problem is there's no price transparency in the whole process. Cause can very, you, <laughs> it can explain that for us. So, I mean, for example, the most recent study that came out said that private college and university across the country are discounting tuition over 54%. So that $60,000 of tuition, the average university is discounting that 50, over 50%. What does discount mean? I mean, I know what it means, but like, what do they base that on? So they're either going to do it in, in, in the form of need-based financial aid, which you have to qualify based on finances, or they're going to do it based on merit or a combination of the two. So scholarships for your academics. So that to me is probably the biggest challenge as a consumer going into this meat grinder of, of figuring out what college is going to cost is it's getting down to what's it going to cost my family to right. go to this school? Because it's different for everybody. Every student going in is a snowflake. 
Yeah, it sounds it sounds a little bit like a, a medical billing or something. I mean, it's just <laughs> difficult to understand what your true price is going to be because it depends on your insurance and your what procedure and everything like that. But um, yeah, and I think that's a really good analogy, right? Because if you're a doctor and somebody says, "Well, how much is that procedure going to cost me?" Like, and you're sitting there going, "I have no idea." Yeah, because I don't know your insurance and all these other factors that go into that ultimate net cost of that procedure. So I think that's a really good proxy with college because it is expensive, but depends on where, what are you going to get a discount for? So that's a really yeah. good analogy. I didn't think of until you said that. Is there, so there's this like sticker price and then there's like the net or true price, I guess is the way it works. Are there types of colleges where you always pay the sticker price? So the thing to understand is when you go into financial aid, like, so if you've got a, you're looking and you've got a junior, senior in high school, you're looking at schools side by side. There's really three key components. Number one, they're going to look at your family's finances. That's going to determine if you're eligible for need-based financial aid. Number two, they're going to look at your students' academics. That's going to determine if they'll qualify for merit scholarships. So those are the two big drivers. The thing that consumer cannot change though is the business model of the school. So I'll give you a concrete example. If you look at it, like all the Ivy League schools, what they have said is it doesn't matter how smart you are, how good your ACTs are, we do not have scholarships for merit. So let that sink in. About top, some of about our top 50 schools, these include schools like USC and Northwestern and you know, Stanford and Georgetown and Yale and Princeton. So all these top schools, we all know the name brand. The reality is if you're a high income person that does not qualify for need-based aid, you will pay full price. It's nothing to do with you or your student. It's just about the business model of the school. You could have brilliant children. The average listener on this podcast is going to be paying full price. At some of those top schools. At yeah. So yeah. So, so those top schools, cause again, it just, but if, and the thing is, I would say, if you want to shop smart, just think of casting the net a little bit wider to say, if you're bright enough to get into those schools, there are absolutely schools that would pay to have you go there to their school, you know, cause what they're trying to do is raise their profile at their school and they've got awesome merit scholarships. So, you know, these are the kind of, you know, conversations we have all the time. of like, you look at, you know, casting the net a little wider. Right. I've heard this, people have this stance quite a, quite often, and I kind of have a little bit of a flavor of it myself. So it's like, you know, I'm, I went to school and I mentioned before I went to university of Florida and my parents, you know, were like, you're on your own. <laughs> you, you're gonna have to take out loans or whatever to get, take care of it. And so I got, and I guess the good thing for me was my parents were broke so financially, and we had a lot of kids. So it was like home run for financial aid. So I got tons of aid. And then the difference, I took out some loans to cover the difference. And so I can kind of look at that as I get older and be like, oh, you know, the tem temptation, or I guess the tendency for people is to be like, you know, that's why I became the person I am. And, you know, it's good for you to go through the same thing I went through, because that's why I'm so good. I mean, that's just kind of how people are. But so I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should, you know, May have my kids take care of take care of it themselves and you know take out the loans or whatever and but i guess the i've heard that come up a lot of times with physicians they're just and that's a i think kind of a uh, this the concept makes sense because you, you can kind of 
uh, learn through some of those challenges and take care of things, be it builds financial responsibility and whatnot. But the challenge there and the big kind of, I guess, hurdle with high income is that you lose all that aid and on top of it, costs have just skyrocketed. So can that even happen? Like, is it possible if I'm a high income physician and I am, I agree with that philosophy, like I did it myself, so I'm going to have my children do it themselves completely. But I also, on top of it, make a really high income. What is that? Yeah, because yeah, that's the challenge because you can say those things, but the reality is the system's going to tell you what they think you can afford. And it's called your expected family contribution. So if you think about that, they're going to look at your finances to determine what that student can afford. So, you know, and likely you're not going to qualify for need-based financial aid. So having that conversation of, hey, look, you're on your own for college. And you're going, well, look, like your income is driving me out of getting any money for college. So it is this delicate blend. So, you know, I think it's being a good steward of your resources to say, like, let's understand what is our college funding philosophy, right? The best way to pay for college is to save for college. So if you can start young and save, I know most people listening probably have significant student loans with this idea of, can we begin to save, do it in a tax efficient way as soon as we have kids? Yeah, I think that's part of it because you got to just like, to your point, understand that like your finances, the fact that you do well, that's going to directly impact your student's ability to get any financial aid. So, but working hard to get great grades and good academics to get merit scholarship. And then understanding there are schools that are weird based on merit scholarship. But you, like I said, you got to look at schools that give money for merit, not just for need. Yeah. So um, like, it sounds like you're, you know, kind of advocating that whole, like, let's take a look at the, let's take a closer look at the school and their, how it's going to, the true cost going back to the sticker price versus the actual cost based on situation and whatnot. But it, so let's say I have, my child is like average, like they're just kind of, you know, average academically. And I haven't really saved for their college and it's coming up soon. And I had gone under this impression that I'm going to have them take care of it themselves because that's the way I did it. And so I guess I'm curious, like, logistically or financially, how does that like literally play out? Like if I'm talking, you know, say average in-states tuition room and boards, 25 grand a year or something like that. Do I have to, can the child even get the loans? I don't think they can. Right. And so what happens then? Yeah. So, so I'd say thing number one, like the process that I run is college pre-approval. Like, I think it's important to understand like, what is the budget for school? It, maybe it's assets, <laughs> but if it's not, can you cash flow some, can you help them through school mm-hmm. that way? You know, if it's four or 500 bucks a month, doesn't sound like much, but if it's $500 a month, you know, that's tw- close to 25,000 over four years. And that's probably just what you're already paying to support them. You know, that's kind of, you know, to your point, that's what my folks did for me. They gave me three, 400 bucks a month. You know, they'd help me out when they could, but you know, so that kind of idea is important. And then, and I also understand like the components is helping your student understand, Hey, look, here's what we can contribute. Here's what we expect you to contribute. Because if you work during school, that's less you have to take out in student loans. So be that at work study or waiting tables or whatever that be, applying some of that as you go is going to reduce your student loans directly. And then kind of that third component is grandparents. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, you know, grandparents have money, but I I meet with, you know, 45 and 50 year old people all the time. And they say, I say, what about grandparent money? And they say, well, I don't know exactly what it is or where it is. I'm like, well, we're going to get a bill for twenty-five dollars to $80,000 for the next four years. We need to figure out how they're gonna, if they're going to help pay for it. 
Yeah. So, so that process, but those are really the three, three things of our money. We want to use the school's money first and then any federal money, obviously, but the school's money. So figure out where can we find a reasonable school that may give us some discounts and, and then just really put together a budget Yeah. because you, because there are limitations. I mean, but the one thing is the federal direct student loan. Um, that's something that every student will qualify for. It doesn't matter if you make $10 million a year, as long as you apply for the fat federal aid through the FAFSA. Uh, mm-hmm. free application for federal student aid you qualify Anybody, yeah the student yep. the student and it's all in the student's name there's no cosigner required but above that twenty seven five thousand a year you can get do you know the cap on those yeah so it's actually stair-stepped so and it's use it or lose it and that's an important thing you know if there's people listening that have a student that maybe is a junior or senior what i mean by use it or lose it is it's 5500 for your freshman year 6,500 for your sophomore, 7,500 for your junior, 7,500 for your senior. So the temptation sometimes is to use like all your 529 money in year one and then just take out other loans in the latter years where the better strategy may be take out those student loans in the student's name. You know, right now they're, you know, they hover around a 3% interest rate and it's a fixed rate. It's a very good loan. So, you know, but understand it's use it or lose it. So make, you know, if it's part of the plan and you need loans, use that federal direct student loan first. So there is a way to kind of partially still go this route of like, I want my kids to learn by taking care of it themselves. So they're going to get student loans, but those numbers, there's very few colleges that will cover the full cost of at that level. So odds are the either the child is going to have to find a very low budget school or they're going to have to earn income or the parents are going to have to provide for it either in the form of like Joe's advocating, ideally you save ahead of time for it, you know, in a college savings account. But if not, you're going to have some, you know, parents could get out student loans themselves. Yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I think maybe a helpful way, kind of a rule of thumb, like, how are normal families paying for college? The average 529 balance is right around $25,000. And that's mm-hmm. great if you've got that or more for per student. But that only, like to your point, covers part of it. So if you think of it in terms of, if you can save for a third, pay for a third while they're there and take out a third in loans, yeah. you're in pretty decent shape. It's kind right. of a good rule of thumb. And it's a much um, lower hurdle. It's a baby step, I guess. So yeah, I think a lot of people, so I show them, you know, as a financial planner, I'm kind of showing people, you know, they just have their first child and I'm like, you know, here's what it's going to cost. You know, what kind of school do you envision your newborn going to? They're like, I have no idea. And it's like, okay, well, let's pick a school and, you know, kind of come up with an average cost. So we show them the cost. It's like, okay, $1,000 a month, you need to be saving <laughs> for college. They're like, what? You're crazy. But I like that approach. It's kind of like a, let's take a small step and maybe do a little bit, a tiny bit into a 529. So a 529 is like the education tax efficient place to put money to save ahead of time for education. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like your 401k for college, as I call it. You know, it's a, it's basically mm-hmm. functions a lot like a Roth IRA. But yeah, it's your savings plan with tax benefits for college. And that's what I would advocate for. So we kind of implied that most physicians would not be getting much need-based funds from schools. But I just wanted to clarify that on your end is that I know it's a little bit more complicated, but is that a pretty decent, you know, assumption is that most the average physician, let's say makes 250 a year, or something like that? Is it extremely low likelihood that sort of income level is going to qualify for any financial aid these days? Not necessarily. So a couple rules of thumb, the formulas are going to want 20 to 25% of your income. 
So, you know, they're going to want, you know, on that 250, they're going to say, we want around 50,000 to 60,000 of that towards the cost of college next year. So it used to be, I would say, yeah, 250 and up, like you're not going to get any financial aid, but now we've got schools that cost 80. (laughs) So if a school costs 80 and they think you can pay 60, you're going to qualify for $20,000 of need-based aid. So it's not a, it's not a, you know, one size fits all. Then if you have six kids, you can kind of, it all goes under that total amount available, right? Right. So right now it's an expected family contribution. So that same example I just gave, let's say they wanted 60,000. If you've got multiple kids in school, most schools are going to give you a discount of about Mm -hmm. 40 to 50%. So if you just call it roughly half, EFC expected contribution of 60, they're going to expect 30 for each. So you may qualify with those overlap years for a pretty significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we see that all the time where first year, one student in $80,000 is what they expect. But then years two, three, four, when your younger sister comes into school, they only expect you to pay about, you know, 40 to 50,000. So you can get quite a bit of aid at those higher price schools. Yeah. yeah. So what's the ideal way to start planning for college. I mean, is it, I think it seems like it's got to be kind of a, you know, regular thing you're checking up on because like I was describing like the newborn situation, it's like, who mm-hmm. knows what you're, and then yeah. who, knows what, who knows what college costs are going to be. But like, I would be curious if you could kind of talk through like the ideal setup, like things people should be thinking about based on, you know, different life circumstances. Yeah. I think there's always this blend of current lifestyle paying down student loans for most of the people listening um, and then saving for our future goals. So I think it's, it is those things, but you know, if we talk about, you know, current lifestyle kind of, you know, when you get that first big check, try not to get over your head, take 10% of that and say, we're going to put that towards savings for our future goals. Cause that's going to really benefit you from a budgeting standpoint. And then if you say like, cause if you go from making 60,000 a year to 250, which a lot of folks do in this profession, if you can say, let's carve out some and not spend all of that to get the huge house and all the cars we've always wanted. If we can say, let's pretend like we're only making 230 mm-hmm. and let's start saving some dollars into the retirement plan at work, get the match. And then if you have a child, you don't have to start with a thousand a month, start with a hundred a month. Yep. Start small. And then and every then time you get up. that raise. Yep. So we try to you know get on that cadence of, if you start when they're, you know, that one years old at a hundred bucks a month and you raise it 50 to a hundred dollars a month, as you get those raises, you're going to be saving five, six, seven, 800 bucks a month by the time they actually go to school. And that, you know, just the hard part, the beauty of like our at work retirement plans is as your salary goes up, your contributions go up, mm-hmm. but with college savings, you kind of have to do it yourself manually. So when you get that raise, think, Oh, you know, I heard Daniel and Joe say that we should up that by 50 or a hundred bucks towards college. That stair-step approach, it, it, it's bite-sized pieces to your point of like, this is a big goal and it comes really fast. You know, the runway is really short for college, but if you can just kind of have that discipline to say, Hey, each year, if we start with a hundred next year, I'm going to do 200. The next year I'm going to do 300 and you'll have a really nice nest egg for college once you get there. Right. At what point do you start thinking beyond just like, I need to save a lot. I mean, maybe you sprinkle that in as you know, more information, but like we were talking about with the scenario where, you know, I want my child to learn by taking out student loans. So you can start to factor that in. Like you were saying the rule, the the thirds rule, that's a good kind of example, like maybe a third's covered by the student loans that they're going to take out. 
and uh, maybe you're trying to save for a third through like a 529 and then maybe the other third is like money you were used to spending on them and that's going to kind of stop and you can just kind of use for college. That's a really good, I think, example for like just starting to pinpoint um, what how much you should be saving. So what you're backing into is how much you should be saving. But and that sort of thing needs to be re revisited over time. But what I'm curious about is like, at what point do you shift to start thinking about like, which college should I be looking at? And how should I be comparing them and, and ironing out those numbers? Yeah, so I call that, you know, one of the things College A Pros, our software platform that essentially the idea is we always say we're changing the way America shops for college. And I don't think a lot of people think about college in terms of shopping, but we certainly do. Because once you get to like that freshman, sophomore year of high school, it becomes less about accumulation and more about shopping smart. You know, because you're going to kind of have what you have. Now we need to go and understand these things like I talked about, like we have a better idea of what we're making so we can get a, a, a we can understand what they think we can afford. And then number two, we can figure out, you know, based on today, what can we actually afford our pre-approval process? So what do we have in assets? What do we have in cash flow, outside help? It's really identifying like, what do we have today? And then how do we shop smart? So the idea is like, how do we find schools are going to be the most generous with financial aid for our family and our student? So that's when you begin to say, okay, look, if I look at this school and I'll give you like an Ohio. So if I looked at a school like Bowling Green, State University, I'd say, well, look, you know, their average ACT is like a 22 to a 26. So if my daughter has a 30 ACT, that university is going to give her a big scholarship, somewhere around 12 to $15,000 per year, right? That same student looking at our marquee school in the state, Ohio State, she might get $2,000 off. Because they, what the school's trying to do, this is kind of a little hack for you to look at, is if you look at like their middle they're going to show you like their middle ACT is like, you know, say it's a, you know, a 30 to a 32. Well, if you're a 33 on the ACT, you're going to have a highest probability of getting money from that school because they only incentivize the top quartile of students because that's the only people they have to incentivize. So that's how you begin to shop smart for scholarships is understand like what the school's trying to do every year is get better students in. So their U.S. News goes up, their Forbes goes up and all that stuff. So yeah. There are schools out there that you can find if you're in the top quartile, you're more than likely going to get a nice scholarship at that school if they award merit scholarships. So you're so your child's getting into that freshman year time frame. So that's <clears throat> so at that point in time you can kind of start to say, let's look at revisit like what the goal is, like what school kind of range we might be thinking about and the situation you're in, how much you've saved, their, you know academics and then your financial position and kind of mix all that stuff together and then starting start running it through like different school examples and start to see like establish like a range of potential schools to fit is that kind of the what you're saying here yeah so in every a couple of things one would be that try to get a handle on kind of is it an academic fit and a social fit for that student like i mean like large small medium campus do they have the major that leads us to the career we want? And then yeah. from the financial aspect, the, every school is required to have what's called a net price calculator on their website. So if you go to a school's website, they'll have a thing called a net price calculator on the financial aid page. And if you put in some information about your income and assets and the student, they'll say, if you were to come last year, we cost you know 50,000, but you would have gotten $15,000 in scholarships. That's what we would project. So every school is required to have that. 
on the website. Does that incorporate academics? Yes. Can it? Yes. Yep. So it's not an indicator for admissions. It's just really for the financial aid component. So that's why they ask PA, ACT, and then income and assets. And that just kind of spits out if you qualify for need-based aid or merit scholarship. Huh. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice, it's required now. I will, I caution people because many of them are a little bit misleading, but it's a good place to start. Right. So you can start to see like true costs, not just the sticker price like we were talking about earlier. Yep. And I'll tell you too, like if you go, like if you go to freecollegemoneyreport.com, freecollegemoneyreport.com is a free website that we have out there for parents, advisors, anybody to go. And it'll give you your, what the schools think you can afford that EFC. And it'll give you your net price estimate of three schools side by side. And it'll show you, did you get scholarship or need-based aid? So it's a completely free tool that we have out there just for people to go get an idea of here's my academics, here's my GPA, ACT. What could I expect at three schools side by side? Yeah. Okay. I like it. We'll link yeah, to all totally free in the show notes. But these are kind of some of the tools you can use to start like getting into the like, let's ratchet down on these numbers. And But I think the gist of what we're saying here is like planning ahead, you know, like the... So you were saying like how you want to change the way average Americans shop for college. So how does the average American, we're kind of talking about the ideal way, but how does the average American shop, you know, these days? Most people say, honey, if you get in, we'll figure it out. That's not shopping. Most people, so, so I picture this. So you're in Kentucky, right? Uh, So, so somebody goes down to down South and they come up the East coast and they're doing their college visits. So they visit Vanderbilt. Georgetown, they go up to MIT, they walk step on Harvard, maybe they hit Penn while they're up there. All the while, these schools are completely intoxicating and they'll convince you no matter what it takes, you should come there. You've not looked at one school that costs less than $80,000. You've only test driven Lamborghinis, Ferraris, and Bentleys. What if you have a Camry budget? You're going to tell a 17 year old, this is the way we shop now go get good grades, go get a perfect ACT do all the clubs, do the sports, do all the things to get you into these great schools. All the while, when they get in, you say, we're not gonna be able to afford that. And they're sitting there going, but you told me to do all these things and I could go where I want. Yeah. Or, and I've seen this happen. The other scenario that happens is you kind of say, you know, if you get in, I'll take care of it and get, try to get as high of ACT scores as you can. And like, like Joe was saying, and I'll, as long as you get in, I'll take care of it. And so People just on the other end of the spectrum, the child gets in to say Vandy or whatever and 70,000 a year or something. And the parent is like, I have to take care of it. I said I was going to, but now I realize what the cost actually is and it's 70,000 a year. So they, you know, delay their retirement or take out their retirement accounts if they haven't saved for it or they get take out student loans. So parents can take out a lot of student loans themselves, which is kind of, you know, ideally you don't take out student loans. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I guess thinking about um, this kind of stuff on the front end strategically before you start looking, it's kind of like looking for houses before you have a budget, you know, obviously yeah. the hundred, you know, million dollar house is going to be a lot sweeter than the $500,000 house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know, like, that's a, it's a great proxy too, because like we talk, we call our program our college pre-approval because we think you should have to show exactly how you're going to pay for all four years, including the loans and the resulting student loan payment regardless who's going to take it. So if we can have conversations earlier with sophomores and juniors in high school and have that college money conversation and help them see into the future for themselves, because we look at 
we say you should never take out more in student loans than you think you're going to make your first year out in that chosen major. Never take out more in student loans than you think you're going to make in that first year out in that chosen major. Reason is because if you go above that, they're going to be coming back and living in the basement. Right. Yeah, that um, would happen for me. I took out. We you you said you took out ten. I was right about ten when I got out of you know undergrad and yeah. And for every ten thousand dollars someone takes out, they owe back about a hundred bucks a month. So if you take out, you know, it is relative to what is the return on that education, right? Mm-hmm. So helping people understand, you know, you don't need to take out a hundred thousand dollars to go be a teacher. You just don't, mm-hmm. right? Because the return on that education just is not there. Yeah. So, you know, but, you know, if, so th- the other thing is I equate this to like, if I go to the same school and I same four years, exact same out of pocket cost and my, my, my roommate is a computer science major. He's going to come out making $80,000 a year. If I'm a teacher, I'm coming out making 42. Yeah. But it's not that we're bad people, but that investment and the return on that investment in that education is different. It just is. Yeah. So you encourage having, including the student and on the financial discussions early on, it sounds like, I think that not all parents do that. Some people are like, we'll take care of it to the point where it's like, they see nothing. Yeah. But yeah. I and think- I, that's, you know, it starts with mom and dad getting on the same page. You know, I really do believe that because a lot of times people ask, well, Hey, do we bring our junior in high school into the meeting? I say, absolutely not. Not the first meeting. Cause we've got to get the two of you on the same page. Right. Yep. So, you know, having that conversation with each other to say, Hey, you know, how was college paid for? Hey, well, I went over seven years. I did a part-time. I paid for it myself, took out some loans, worked my tail off and got my bachelor's degree. Whereas dad's sitting there going, Hey, you know, I did it over four years, private university. It was all paid for. We've got to find a bridge there, you know, to figure out what's our college funding philosophy for our kids. And just because you make a ton of money doesn't mean that you necessarily want to put that all towards education. And if you've got five kids, you know, figuring out a college funding philosophy. It's just important to have those conversations because what you do for that first child, make no mistake, childs, you know, four through one are all going to be looking. Right. So you set expectations and then you're really in a hole. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. That's, I guess, a little plug for, we're we're both financial planners. Um, I don't (laughs) don't know how much Joe's doing these days, but uh... But, you know, that, that, that kind of conversation can get a little dicey. Surprisingly, like college is one of them. There's a bunch of them that can get kind of dicey, but for some, for whatever reason, education, this discussion around what are, what is our education philosophy or how much are we going to help out with education that a lot of times gets dicey with couples. And so working through that diciness with a third party is sometimes helpful. Um, they can kind of help help you get into because at the end of the day you typically it's a compromise or at least that's you know probably how you should be think, thinking about it as opposed to like staunch so yeah and i think it's tough because we're talking about two things that are for a lot of american families the most important things in, in their life which are a great education and their kids and i mm-hmm. get that that you want to do everything to give your kids the best opportunity but just having that understanding one of the things I think this is one of the first times we're going to help them make a strong financial decision. And I'll give you like a concrete example of where this really turns itself on its head is a woman that I met, you know, about three, four years ago at a financial planning conference, ironically. And she says to me, you know, oh, I'm looking forward to hearing your talk. And I said, cool. Like, what's your story? So, well, I went to a private university, had a great experience, played the cross there and it was awesome. I said, and she said, and I graduated with $128,000 in student loans from undergrad. 
So where that plot thickens is she said, Mm -hmm. I haven't talked to my parents in over four years. I was 17. How was I supposed to know? They co-signed on loans. I signed on the loans. I had no idea what I was getting into. So for her figuring it out, that meant she had a $1,400 a month payment. She was done. That's figuring it out sometimes, not understanding exactly what you're getting into. So that's a really <laughs> concrete example. It's a tough way to learn. Ideally though, you know, if I'm thinking about my kids, I'd hate for that situation to play out with them. And so that's kind of part of what we were talking about is, you know, ideally you start to teach those lessons before it all plays out and you can kind of, and the parents are, you know, we try to play like we're, you know, perfect. Everybody kind of, plays this whole, you know, especially <laughs> sure. with social media. It's like, look at my perfect yeah. family here. <laughs> but yeah. we all kind of try to play the part of perfection. But in reality, like most people are not great about thinking about some of these future-oriented things ahead of time. And so it starts with the parents and thinking about this type of stuff ahead of time. That's kind of the foundation of what I think we're talking about. And then it, all, it also opens up all kinds of opportunities to, you know, be strategic to like, and maybe even loop your children in and help teach them lessons along the way. Cause this is just one of the biggies. I mean, you can kind of start to uh, sprinkle in. And at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing that motivates me for this kind of a thing is you end up tending to, I guess, like emulate your parents or like even without noticing, you know, fall into the examples of what they've set. So uh, for this kind of thing, you're setting the example for what they're going to ultimately follow. So that's a little bit more like pressure to get these types of things done right. You know, cause you're always, you don't want your child to get into a tough spot just because of your, you're not thinking about something like this. So, but everybody's different at the end of the day. So that's the thing that's probably most important is like, everybody has a different philosophy. Everybody has a different spin on this. So it doesn't, there's no, like definitely no one size fits all. And some kids won't even go to college. Right. So it's like, you got to, you know, always incorporate that, that sort of aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the last piece as you were kind of running through that, because it is important to understand what's the investment because we do think of it as a buying choice and an investment. And I just recently did a piece where we were saying like, is one school worth the premium over another? So if the out-of-pocket cost is a hundred thousand for one school and 200,000 for another hundred thousand dollar difference, what could that hundred thousand dollars do? So I ran it through a calculator and said, if you put $100,000 in for an 18-year-old, it's worth over $2.5 million when they're 65. <laughs> yeah, right. So then the question is, yeah, is it worth it to pay the extra 100000 Yeah. And that's a tough yeah. question. It is tough. It's a premium. Is it worth the premium? You know, Is the education that much better? Is your outcome that much better? It's just a lens to consider looking through. You know, When we buy things at a premium, you know, there's a reason you buy a Mercedes instead of a Corolla. You know, so I mean, there's reasons we do that. So it's just a different lens to think of it through. As opposed to saying, you know, if you get into the $200,000 school, we'll make it work for you. Yep. Just thinking about what could that be? Could you put it in an account or could you help them start a business when they're done? Or Depends travel on the kid. a whole lot or something, you know. Yeah, I would have loved that. There's <laughs> alternatives. That would have been a, you know, a whole lot of, you know, potential fun or future wealth or whatever, or a down payment on a house or, or something like that. So, yep. Just things to think about. Cool. Well, Joe, I really appreciate you chatting with me about this stuff. Where can people find out more info about you and all your resources? Uh, if you go to capstonewealthpartners.com, there's a very deep blog. There's a number of eBooks, videos, what kind of resource. And then collegeaidpro.com is our 
is a platform that more will be coming. And I think that, you know, if you're at college, freecollegemoneyreport.com is probably a great place for you to get a handle on what schools may actually cost you out. If you're in high school, that's a great place for you to go. Yeah. And starting, you know, as early as freshman year too, it's like, that's Mm -hmm. probably the time to be starting to think about that. Awesome, Joe. Well, I appreciate it, man. And look forward to talking again soon. All right, man. Thanks for having me on. Best of luck here the rest of the year. If you're ready to start boosting your earning power with locums, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com slash payday to learn more.